Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I always enjoy these times with you in Bible study. I guess I enjoy the pace of these lessons. Just needs to be times when we slow our mind to the pace of a thinker and pitch your mental tent for a while and consider just how amazing and how intricate the word of the Lord is. From one of my earliest ministry memories, I, I always wanted to be a Bible preacher. I, I didn't want to tell a few stories and then mix in a jokers too and, and then give you what I consider a, a chicken soup sermon. Years ago, one of the most sold Christian books was called Chicken Soup for the Soul. Usually it was a nice story with a, a good moral behind it. Warm and comforting, you know, like chicken soup. I read something when I was 16 in, uh, in the very small bedroom my dad had made for me. We had two bedrooms in our house. Mine had a bed, a closet. My dad built this thing for me. It had a desk, and on the left, it had a gun cabinet for a couple guns, and all the rest of it was shelves for books. And it was in that little room that I read a, a booklet by a man named G.T. Haywood. Little did I know then that one, one chapter, really one paragraph in that book would set me on a lifelong pursuit of trying to somehow understand the word. Haywood wrote that hidden away within the seven days of creation and the seven feasts of Jehovah were the rhythms needed to understand the days, the weeks, the Sabbaths, the months, the years, the jubilees that were in the word, all operating on a perfect cycle of seven. Scripture says in Psalms 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It'll convert the soul. So at the beginning this evening, I would like you to consider the pace. We're teaching about the seven churches in Revelation, but I want you to consider the pace and the perfection of the seven feasts of Jehovah when you compare it with the seven days of creation. Because the very first feast in Leviticus 23 is known as Passover. It commemorated that night in Exodus chapter 12 when the death angel passed over the land of Egypt. And uh, executed the firstborn that were not in a blood-covered home. You have to understand that so many people just talk about babies, but you can't restrict it to infants. It's very 
Uh, you know, if the dad that was in that house was firstborn, he died. If grandpa was still alive and he was firstborn, he died. There were lots of families that had more than one death on that night. But that was the night that the Lord separated the children of light from the people of darkness. Just as the first creative day was a separation of light from darkness. Second feast is known as unleavened bread. Leaven is yeast. And any of you that bake know that the reason you put yeast in dough is it creates gas. And this gas forms bubbles in the dough. And that's why bread is spongy. That's why you can grab it and, you know, it's all fluffy. But without leaven, the loaf is solid. And uh, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 8, it talks about the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Thus, on the second day, it talks about the firmament. When God began to make solids, from the gases of the former day. I don't believe that the seven days of creation are 24 hours each. The simple explanation of that is there wasn't even a sun created until the fourth day. We have no idea how long those others were. However, we do know how long day six will last. That's 7,000 years. And if the day of the Lord or if the word of the Lord is perfect, then by revelation in scripture, you can divide the other six days into 7,000 year segments as well. The third feast is first fruits. And the third creative day, God brought the first emblems of life created vegetation bearing fruit and trees bearing fruit after its kind and there was no man there to till the ground but the word talks about the trees wave their branches in praise to their creator the fourth feast is known as pentecost this is the day that the lord gave the great light to the world the great light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. This is a great picture of Holy Spirit baptism. I wonder John said, as he is, so are we in the world. And in John 8 and 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and as he is, so are we in this earth and since that fourth day was great light you and I have a role in that as well Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 15 that we shine as lights in the world the fifth feast was trumpets this is a day of creation where life produced sound Leaves and grass have nothing to say. 
But this is the time of the dinosaurs and their roars, the creation from the water, voices of massive creatures. From the quack, the Bible talks about winged fowl on the fifth day. So from the quack of the duck to the honk of the goose to the song of the robin and the, the lonely the lonely voice of the loon, this is the very first time noise and vocalization occurred. Haywood taught, and since I've always been a great advocate of this man, this is a man that died in, I believe, in 1932. He made a fascinating prediction in the early 30s. He said, one day, we will discover a crater in the earth that was created by something falling from heaven that evoked what many people call nuclear winter. It took a long time, but if you study these things, geography, topography, whatever you want to call it, outside of the central peninsula that connects the United States with South America, there is a massive crater. There's a big one out there in New Mexico, but I don't know if it's New Mexico or Arizona. It's nothing like the one that's in the sea to the east of the peninsula that joins North America and South America. Haywood believed this is when Satan fell and all of these things were obliterated. The sixth feast is atonement, a time of shedding of blood and afflicting the soul. It's the message of the church because uh, from the shedding of blood that created the coat that Adam and Eve put on till the shedding of blood of the ultimate lamb it's been a time of atonement and affliction. Here's a verse in Isaiah 63 and verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In other words, what happened to them happened to him. So my question is, how in the world can a spirit be afflicted? Because in Luke 24 and verse 39, it said, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. But listen again with revelation to this verse. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This was the inspiration for Haywood's timeless song. I see a crimson stream of blood that flows from Calvary. It's waves which reach the throne of God are sweeping over me. Bible says very clearly in Leviticus 17 and 11, it's the blood that makes an atonement. Seventh feast was tabernacles. In the beginning, this was known as the day of rest. 
Please watch this verse very clearly. Genesis 2 and 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. There are other translations that said he rested from the work that he intended to make. The word creation is a Hebrew word, bara. It means to plan, to form, to mold. But the word make is a Hebrew word that means to bring to the point of accomplishment. Listen very carefully. His creation is done, but his work is not finished. The plan is complete but he hasn't built everything that he's planned. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 and 9, there remaineth a rest to the people of God. There's going to be a time when the tabernacle of God is going to be with men. Look at it another way. On day one, look at it from the aspect of your personal life. On day one, just as light shone out for the very first time, the light of the gospel shined in your heart. And you began your journey from darkness to light. Bible said in Psalms 36 and verse 9, in his light we see light. On day two, just as he separated the water and made a distinction, that same separation began in your life and mine when we began to separate ourselves. Repentance starts taking place. Separating yourselves from non-growth elements of the world. Day three, the first sprigs of grass began to grow. And just like that, gospel message came to us. We began to separate ourselves and sanctify ourselves unto him. All of a sudden, some new things start growing up in your life. You start thinking different. You start talking different. On day number four, he put the great light of the sun and the lesser light of the moon and the stars in the world. But in Malachi chapter 4, it talks about the Son, capital S, the Son of Righteousness. When the great light, when the Lord came into my life and into your life. But he didn't just give us a great light. He gave us a lesser light known as the moon. Which I think very clearly you can prove in the scripture is a type of the church that was given for seasons and given to help you walk in the dark. And if Ryan Gibbs is in here tonight, look what I found. Because she asked me after prayer meeting Monday, Pastor, if the Lord is the sun and the church is the moon, then who are the stars? 
And the Bible said in Revelation 1 and 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now a lot of people say that means pastor. All I know is it says the stars are the angels. So Ryan, I think when we begin to serve the Lord, we're ultimately going to have him, the son of righteousness in our life. We're also going to have the advantage of the church that's going to be able to give us a, what the Bible said is a lighted path, a lamp in the darkness. And you also get the great gift of the angels that the Bible said are ministering spirits to heirs of salvation. In Luke chapter 4, it, it mimics Matthew chapter 4. But Luke chapter 4 tells the story of Jesus going into the wilderness as he, after he was baptized by John the Baptist. Fasting for 40 days, Satan coming and tempting him. This is what Luke said in verse 13 of chapter 4. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. But listen to what Matthew said at the same time. And then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I wonder what they had to say. Way to go, boss. You're the man. You sure did kick his behind. Again. Last time, you kicked him clean out of the city. We always wondered where he went. Wow. You sure did kick him a long ways away, boss. You could play for the NFL. You could kick a 100-yard field goal with them legs. Sit down here and let us rub your feet. Let us rub your shoulders. This is what the message says. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. That's what we get. The great light of him. The lesser light of the church. And ministering spirits. It can take care of your needs. On day five, vocalization occurred because when he comes into your life, it is impossible to remain silent. We are his witnesses. Day six, it says that we were made in his image after his likeness. No wonder David said in Psalm 17 of verse 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. John said, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. 
for we shall see him as he is. Corinthians says corruption is going to put on incorruption. No wonder the word says you get beauty for ashes. What a trade. No wonder it goes on to say, do you hear me, Ann? I know Ann and Mark are in their living room listening to me right now. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Hallelujah. Because in the beginning, man was made in his image after his likeness. Adam didn't get the likeness. He just got the image. That was something man would chase after. That's why David said, I don't have it, but I will, I will be content and satisfied when I finally get that. Because the word image means vessel or container, but likeness means essence of. So I've asked you for years, what is the image of God? And it's very clear in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, it's the body of Jesus Christ. What is the image of God? Flesh. We have the image. We have the flesh. We have what the word calls the earnest. This is Ephesians 1 and 13. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Do you understand what I'm saying to you right now? The baptism of the Holy Ghost is not the ultimate. It's the earnest. When you put earnest money down on something, you're interested. But you don't have it right then. But you're telling that person, I'm coming back with the rest of the loot. He has filled us with his spirit. But that's only the earnest. The Bible said, until the redemption of the purchased possession. I have a lot of answers for this question, but do you know why I know he's coming back? Because you and I have experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He wouldn't have given that to you and to me if he didn't intend to come back and pick up what he bought. The church is on layaway. And when he comes to get you, the seventh day of rest, the ultimate Sabbath, the emerald rainbow that says, this time the storm is really over. That is just another way for me to approach you and to show you why the factor of seven is so important to our study of the Bible. I am convinced that the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 perfectly aligned with the seven parables 
that were given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. The first parable was the sower went out to sow. I believe that's the Ephesian church. The second parable was the tares. The weeds were sown with the wheat. I'm convinced that's a picture of the season of Smyrna that the church would go through. The next parable was of the mustard seed. The problem with this is we get the parable of the mustard seed confused with faith. In Matthew chapter 13, he's, he's not talking about if you'll have faith as a grain of mustard seed. These are two totally different verses, two totally different concepts. In Matthew chapter 13, he talks about a mustard seed which is so small, but it grows so big that the bird of the air finds a place to lodge in its limbs. This is what happened with the weeds that were sown in the Smyrna church. They kept growing and growing and growing. Now you're into Pergamos, which brings us to the fourth parable, which was the parable of the leaven. Doesn't look like much, but if you don't fix it, it's gonna infect the whole lump. And it did with Thyatira. Sardis is parable number five, when the hidden treasure in Sardis began. I'm convinced this is where the reformation of the church began with Martin Luther and others started discovering things that had been there all the time, just covered with a lot of dirt. Fifth, or the sixth parable was of the pearl, pearl of great price. This will bring us to the church in Philadelphia. Six of the seven churches were rebuked for something. It is only the sixth church, Philadelphia, that there was no rebuke among them whatsoever. But the seventh and last parable is the parable of the drawing of the net. I personally believe that's us. I believe that's Laodicea. Listen to what it says in that first church in Revelation 2. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that hath holden the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works. I know your labors. I know your patience. You can't bear people which are evil. You have tried them which say they're apostles and they aren't and have found them liars. You have borne. This is not talking about birth. It's talking about carrying you have patience. For my name's sake, you have labored and you have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. But this thou hast... Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This has always fascinated me. I've spent, I don't know how much time on this. Nicholas was a proselyte in the Antioch church. I've read several things that very, very similar. They believe the Jerusalem church was church number one. They believe that Antioch was church number two because they were called Christians first at Antioch. And in order of prominence, they believe that the Ephesian church was church number three. If you know your Bible in Acts chapter six, there rose a complaint between Greek widows and Hebrew widows. The Greek widows claimed that the Jewish widows were getting treated better than they were. And so the Bible said in Acts 6 and verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, who's going to play a massive interest in Acts chapter 8, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. This is a wonderful study all by itself. I can't afford the luxury of getting sidetracked here. But when I studied these seven names, not one of these names is Jewish. The seven men that they chose were Greeks. These are all Greek names, not Jewish names. So the apostles really stacked the deck. They did everything they could to show there was no partiality, but in fact there was. They literally asked only Greeks to serve in these positions, doing their best to try and prove that they, they were more than fair. My interest is in this guy named Nicholas. The Bible says he was a proselyte from the Antioch church. History says his dedication to the message was very short-lived. This is the man who introduced what is known as the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to the early church. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans as There's lots of opinions about it, but as near as I can tell, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a knee-jerk reaction to what are known as the Judaizers. You've heard the word circumcision. The word circumcision means surgical procedure. But in the book of Colossians, I believe, Paul said, beware of the concision. Not circumcision, concision. Circumcision is a delicate surgical procedure, but concision basically means mutilation. He was referring to these people known as the Judaizers. These are the people that play a massive role in the first fight 
in the early church. These are the people that were so intimidated because Gentiles were pouring into the church. You will find the first fight in the New Testament church was over race. And um, these are the guys that said, okay, we'll let you join your church if you all agree to be uh, circumcised. Which has nothing to do with the gospel message. I'm 65. That's a deal breaker as far as I'm concerned. I'm not joining your church if I got to get circumcised. These are the same people that influenced Peter to where Paul said, I withstood Peter to the face. You got to remember, Peter's the guy that went to Cornelius' house. Peter's the guy, this is Acts chapter 10 when Peter went to Cornelius' house. But in Acts chapter 11, even though he's quote unquote the guy with the keys, it's obvious that Peter was submitted to elders that were in the Jerusalem church. And when he got back home from Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 11, they were mad that he had gone to Cornelius' house to have dinner. The Bible said you broke bread with dogs. He basically said, oh, it's worse than that. While I was teaching, they started speaking in tongues. And I asked them six guys that were with me, you got any reason why we couldn't baptize them? They couldn't come up with a reason and neither did I. No. They weren't baptized before they were filled with the Holy Ghost. However, they did purify their hearts with faith, which means they repented. God filled them with the Holy Ghost. He gave them the like same precious gift as we who believed in the beginning. (laughs) He defends what happened in Cornelius' house. James in Acts chapter 15 said, Simeon or Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. But then James says this, and to this agree the words of all the prophets. After this, I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build up his ruins as the day, as in the days of old, that the residue of men are going to be a part of the church. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Peter defended what happened in Cornelius' house. But later on, in the mighty move in Ephesus, when you read the book of Acts, the Judaizers came up from Jerusalem and convinced Peter to go back on his racism. And Paul withstood him to the face and said, you were the guy that God used to bring a massive Gentile harvest into the church. And now you're mutilating the gospel. That's one extreme. The knee-jerk reaction to the Judaizers was the doctrine of Nicholas. Nicholas twisted Paul's teaching on grace 
It's a big buzzword right now, grace. I've heard people pray for years, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Don't ever get the two words confused. Grace is not mercy. Mercy always runs downhill, ladies and gentlemen. When you study grace, this is what the Bible says, probably in the book of Titus. It says, and the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly and righteously in this present evil world. Please notice what it says. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all teaching us to deny ungodliness. I'm convinced grace is a teacher. Renee's dad gave me an example many years ago. I thought it was amazing when I first heard it. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the Ten Commandments are not given until the 20th chapter of Exodus. When you go back into the book of Genesis, I tried to show you how great Joseph was because there are 14 chapters in the Bible from 37 until 50. Chapter 37 of Genesis until 50. There are 14 chapters there. Every one of those chapters is about Joseph except one. And that is chapter 39. Chapter 39 tells the story of Joseph's older brother, Judah, who committed adultery with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. When you study Joseph, 17 years old, sold by his brothers into slavery, had every right to have a chip on his shoulder. Goes to Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. But this is what he says. I can't do this sin against my God. That's, that's, that's Genesis 38. I think. Either 38 is Judah or 39 is Judah. What interests me is you're hundreds of years before Exodus 20. In other words, the law against adultery had not even been written yet. But Joseph said, I can't do this sin against my God. Joseph there's no rule against adultery that's even been written yet. The grace of God that appeared to all men appeared to Joseph and taught him to deny ungodliness in a very evil home. You're going to be bombarded with this in the years to come. It's prevalent 
in spirit-filled congregations now. Grace of God. I am convinced these people have turned grace into disgrace. Because what Nicholas did was he took Paul's teaching on grace and introduced a false freedom into the church. Both extremes were wrong. The rigid legalism of the Judaizers and the loose freedom of Nicholas and his doctrine. I've read to you Revelation 2 and verse 6, which is the first mention of the doctrine. He commends these people. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which means it's already there. But this is the Ephesian church. But when you get to the next church, which is Smyrna, all of a sudden the, the weeds are going to be introduced into the church. Listen to what it says to the next church in 2 and 14. But I have a few things against you because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. This is, this is 14. Look what it says in 15. But hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Peter in 2 Peter 2 and 15 talks about the way of Balaam. Jude, in Jude verse 11, talks about the error of Balaam. John talked about the doctrine of Balaam. I believe the way of Balaam is a willingness to preach the word for personal gain. Balaam took the money because the king Balak wanted him to curse Israel. When he first tried, the Bible said the Lord filled his mouth with blessing. And one of the most beautiful prophecies you ever read in the Bible is Balaam's prophecy that God put in his mouth as he was trying to curse Israel. But it is very obvious that he kept going and went back to get the money. It says in 2 Peter 2 and 14 having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices. This is the verse that precedes they have forsaken the right way, gone astray following the way of Balaam. There are people who have national and international platforms that are teaching the sign of the blessing of God is money. I want to know who's telling the truth. 
these mercenary prophets who claim that the obvious sign of the blessing of God is money? Or Jesus Christ who said, if you get too much of it, it's going to be hard for you to get in the kingdom. Somebody's lying. My problem with prosperity theology is you can't preach it everywhere. I was asked years ago to speak at Heritage USA right after the Jim Baker fiasco. There were a lot of people there. They had a healing service. I don't know how they got my name. But they got my name and asked me to go there and speak. I never told anybody for years that I went there. I knew if I asked, everybody would tell me, no, you can't go. Except years later, I was asked to do something and I called a, a great elder named Tom Fred Tenney. And he told me, Harold, you have a gospel to preach. You have a license to preach the gospel to the world. Don't tell anybody, just go. He told me last month I preached in the church in England, trying to remember the Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, only my wife and you know that. Because if I told anybody else, they couldn't handle it. But I want to preach an Episcopalian church. How would you like to be a part of a church that had its genesis of the king married to one woman, one to marry another, already has got kids with one, wants the preacher to annul his marriage saying he didn't have sex with this woman, even though they got kids, so that he can marry the second one. Pope wouldn't do it. He said, the only way you can get remarried is if your first wife dies. No problem. So he kills her. That's the beginning. King got so mad, the king of England created his own church, the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church. How would you like to belong to a church that's that's how it started? With a horny king that couldn't keep his pants on and wanted to marry somebody other than his real wife. Wow, that's a great foundation. to. But my friend Brother Tenney went and preached it the Archbishop, for the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'll never forget being there in North Carolina. That place was massive. They had a great vision. They really did. In my message, I said, I believe that Jim and Tammy Baker were very sincere in their efforts, but they were sincerely wrong told the story about a little girl who in that time in Michigan was in the UP. She wandered into the woods in her backyard and they looked and looked and looked for her. They finally found her frozen to death two days later. And when they backtracked her, her wanderings through the woods, there were times she was just a couple feet from breaking out of the woods and she would have been in one of her neighbor's yards and would have been able to find her house but she kept circling and got lost and froze to death. My question was, do you believe she was sincere? Yes. But she was sincerely wrong and went the wrong way. Never forget when I was done, I was starting to walk away and this belligerent woman came up to the, by the platform screaming at me. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. 
And I turned and acknowledged her and kept walking. And she said, I'm talking to you. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And the rage of the Holy Ghost came through me. And I looked at her and said, finish the verse. <laughs> said, you don't know it, do you? Let me help you. Judge not lest you be judged. But when you judge, this is how you're supposed to judge. Study the teachings of Jesus on what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching you can't judge somebody's motives. Don't ever tell somebody, I know why you did that. No, you don't. You can't judge their motives. However, you can judge what they say and you can judge what they do. And if what they do and what they say doesn't line up with the word, then you need to tell them the truth in love. But don't ever buy into this foolishness. You, you better never judge. The Bible said you better judge yourselves. You better turn that hard, cold radar back on your own self-righteous spirit. That's important. Creflo Dollar said, I need $50 million for a new jet. I remember Oral Roberts years ago was in trouble with the university in Tulsa. Oral Roberts had a vision of a 90-foot-tall Jesus who was a hitman. Jesus told me he was going to kill me if you don't give me, I forget how many millions of dollars. They gave the money. Jesus didn't kill oral. Which where I live, the word oral just means a lot of words. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't preach prosperity theology around the world. But you can preach repentance, water baptism, and the infilling of the Spirit. That's a message that goes around the world. Everybody ain't going to get a Beamer. Everybody's not going to have a gold credit card for all the boutiques over there in Somerset. You can't preach that foolishness. The wealthiest guy the world ever knew was naked on a tree and they bargained over his clothes. Bible said there was healing in the edges of his garment. <laughs> Bible said they parted his robe. Every soldier got a part. They tore that robe into four pieces. I'm going to show you how stupid Satan is. When Jesus had one robe, it had four edges. But by the time Satan got done, there's 16 edges. You have quadrupled the healing power of Jesus Christ in your ignorance. <laughs> so these guys that go after what the word calls the way of Balaam to where you'll sell out and you'll prostitute yourself for money. Then there is the error of Balaam. I believe the error of Balaam was his willingness to compromise his own standards in order to accommodate that pagan king. 
In other words, you'll do and say whatever they want you to if you can keep them as friends. And I believe the doctrine of Balaam was to use his own teaching to teach others it was okay to compromise their standards, even to commit fornication with idol-worshiping enemies. And no wonder Micah urged people, don't ever forget about how they killed Balaam with the sword. John compared the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to Balaam, who cast a stumbling block in front of the early church. It started out as tares and weeds, but like a mustard seed, it it grew. And in the Old Testament, Balaam was unsuccessful in cursing Israel from without. But he taught them to mix worldliness and godliness and they cursed themselves from within. There's a great analogy to this in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. This is a famous place in the Bible known as Zion. It is first controlled by a group of people known as the Jebusites. It's very, very powerful because this is, this is where the bank was. This is where the money was. This is also where the armory was. This is where they kept their weapons. This was also a place where their great warriors were. They were so confident that David couldn't take the stronghold of Zion that they guarded the walls of Zion with blind people and lame people. But this is what it says in 2 Samuel 5 and 8. So David said on that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. This is when a guy named Joab shows up on the radar. How did they take the stronghold of Zion? They went through the sewers. They went through the gutters. They went through the holes at the bottom of the wall. You want an interesting study. Study the Great Wall of China. 13,171 miles long. It took over 2,000 years to build the Great Wall of China. It's so big, you can see it from space. Because they were doing everything they could to keep the Mongols from invading China. But they did invade China because they found a secret way through the walls. And when the Chinese figured it out, the enemy was already on the inside. Ladies and gentlemen, Balaam and Nicholas 
taught the people how to curse themselves from within. His doctrine is based on a, remember, he's a Greek proselyte. This is, this is based on a Greek concept called dualism. He is saying that since they were sinners, Paul said, of course, he was the chief of sinners. Since we are sinners saved by grace, Nicholas taught you could live like the world on the outside and still remain saved on the inside. This is the basis of what later would morph into something known as Calvinism. Unconditional, eternal security. This is where the confession booth came from. From the worldwide political church. Just confess your sins to the priest and keep living in sin. Three Hail Marys and four Our Fathers. Once you're saved, you're always saved. No one can pluck you out of his hand. What he didn't tell you is you can jump. Since his teaching required no outward or even inward change, he and his followers, history said, attracted huge crowds of converts from the pagan world and from the lukewarm church. See if this sounds familiar. Why live in the bondage and the legalism of holiness and sanctification when Jesus died so that you could be free? I don't have time to address it tonight, but I can tell you that those apostles taught on conduct and how you should dress. Go to the first story in the Bible. Adam and Eve, they... uh, They made aprons. God made them a coat. Aprons just cover the bare essentials. A coat covers the whole thing. I saw something years ago and it affected me very deeply. In Exodus chapter 19, they came to Sinai. It was on fire. God told Moses, if anybody touches this mountain, I'll kill him. And he commanded Moses to build a fence around Sinai. The interesting thing to me is he didn't, there's no mention in the scripture of God telling Moses where to build the fence. I don't know if he built the fence right at the bottom of the mountain where it started to go up. I don't know if he went 100 yards, 500 yards. I don't know. I just know that's the job of a leader to build a fence and try to keep people from dying and blowing their brains out. I guess I'd rather meet a fence at the top of a mountain than an ambulance at the bottom of it. This is the difference between holiness and church government. Years ago when the church was much smaller, I did a little survey in my Bible class. I want to know how many pastors you've sat under before you came here. At that time, I believe it was 74 different pastors were represented by the people that were in the church. I always got quite upset when someone said, yeah, but my other pastor did this. Well, then go back to that church. 
that's not where you're going to church now. We had a wealthy man leave this church years ago because he wanted to make a quote-unquote donation to the church that he said was worth $50,000 for some implements. I knew it wasn't anywhere close to that. He said, well, I need credit for these sales in order for me to get the prize, that I'm the best salesman in this region. I had just had a meeting with our accountant, and he said the laws have changed. Used to be people could donate to church. Church could say what they thought it was worth and give them a tax write-off. That doesn't work anymore. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. I told the man that. I said, I, I can't do that. He said, well, my last pastor did it every year for me. He left. He's a wealthy man. Still is a wealthy man. I'm not his other pastor. My job is to do the best I know how to keep you from dying. Because I'm a lot more afraid of him than I am of you. I preached a message years ago. I think I only preached it one time. Never preached it again. (laughs) There's so many times I'll study and I'll pray and I'll study and I'll spend hours and I'll speak one time and I'll go back in the office and put it on the shelf. I, I saw it as I was walking out tonight. There's five feet of things I've done in years past. Most of them I've only done one time here and never ever preached them anywhere else. I taught a message called, Who Did Jesus Serve? This is what Jesus said. I always do those things which please my Father. Pastor, your job is to serve the church. No, it isn't. My job is to do my best to serve Him and please Him. If that pleases you, fine. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. I had a lady castigate me one time. She was very effective. Right there. Telling me everything that was wrong with this church. I just looked at her really. I didn't know what to say. I just said, do you think I'm doing my best? She said, well, I guess so. I said, well, what more can I do? It's the best I know how to do. Ladies and gentlemen, there may be people in the New Jerusalem who got to do stuff that we've asked you not to do. But if you make it, you won't be mad at me. However, however, if we dumb this thing down to where you're lost and the teacher's going to receive the greater condemnation, which is me. If there's a basement in hell, that's where I'm going. You're going to curse me for eternity. The apostles taught about conduct. I've said this for years. I'm going to say it to you again. If it's not for sale, you don't put it in the window. The Bible doesn't teach long hair and short hair. It teaches uncut hair. That's why in other verses it says if you've cut it, Leave it alone and let it grow again. Because, lady, your hair is your glory. It's your glory. The Bible said you ought to 
keep it on your head because of the angels. It was years ago when I was first here that I went to a motel for two days with just my Bible. No other books, just my Bible. Because I was under enormous pressure to change. I studied Corinthians 11 and I came up with three words. Glory, covering, angels. Those are the words that stood out to me in Corinthians 11. So I asked myself the question, where is the first place in the Bible where those three words are used? And you'll find it in the Ark of the Covenant. When that Ark was taken, they said the glory of God has departed. Ark of the Covenant was a gold box and on top of that box was a lid or a covering known as the mercy seat. Welded into the mercy seat were these angels that looked at the mercy seat. And once a year, the priest would take the blood and splash it on that mercy seat seven times. And God would incandesce. God would visibly manifest his presence. That's the word Shekinah. It's not a Bible word. It's a word old rabbis gave to that manifestation of the presence of God. You're going to find that the ark was taken into the land of Philistines for seven months. When they came back, I'm sure the Philistines were curious. They took the lid off. They tasted that manna that was in that pot called an omer. They stole the stick. Never stole the tablets. I asked a man that I deeply respect last week. Why do you think the Philistines took the manna and took Aaron's rod, but they didn't take the tablets? And he said, because it didn't line up with the way they lived. They didn't want anything to do with them commandments. They just left them alone. But when the ark came back to Joseph and the Beshemites, the Bible said they took the lid, the covering, off of the box which contained the law of God. Up until then, the blood covering was on top of judgment. (laughs) But when they took the lid off or the covering, the angels are in the covering. So when you take the covering off, there's no place for the glory to perch. And you're exposed to the raw, naked law of God. And 56,000 people died. Bam. Ma'am, I believe your hair, if you'll leave it alone, will bring ministering spirits to church. I really believe that. And I'm not saying this to hurt you or harm you, but I'm trying to show you on something. I believe there's ministering power and glory in your hair. And if you don't have any, there's no place for the glory to perch. Leave it alone. Let it grow. Do not buy in to the same old thing that duped the early church. You're just a sinner on the outside anyway. It doesn't matter. The grace of God is here for us. Nicholas taught externals were not important. 
But on two separate occasions, Jesus, who wrote the book of Revelation, said, I hate the teachings of Nicholas. And since the word says, there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning in him. I think it sounds to me like he's going to stay the same and not change. An outward standard of holiness was the first thing to go in the great falling away in the early church. But the tide did not stop there. Holiness was soon followed by legitimate repentance. Water baptism by immersion was replaced with sprinkling. The gifts of the Spirit did not exist. The oneness of God was replaced with the Trinity. Pastors and bishops were replaced with popes and cardinals. And as the apostles died one by one, leaders with weaker convictions stepped in and very subtly changed the message. I found a scripture in Isaiah where he talked about the prophet that had fallen in the street. I'm convinced this is why the enemy to this day is attacking the doctrine of separation so forcefully. If we compromise the non-negotiable principles of righteousness for personal convenience or for social acceptance, we're going to let weeds grow in this thing. And after a while, we're going to have a form of godliness, but no power. Scripture is too precious And eternity is too long. These modern followers of Nicholas don't fool me. I know what they did to the early church and I know what I've seen them do to the one today. This new freedom is nothing more than the same old bondage of sin just with another set of clothes on. It's a pig with 14 shades of cheap lipstick. You watch these people long enough And watch what begins with walking away from holiness and separation. It eventually affects the way they look at scripture. And it morphs and goes from scriptural to moral. Starts out with holiness, righteousness, separation from the world and unto him. And then all of a sudden water baptism really doesn't matter that much anymore. Want to speak in tongues? Fine. If you do, fine. Listen to what the Bible says. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That means two things. Number one, if we don't make an attempt to have holiness and righteousness in this church, nobody's going to see Jesus in us. And it also means I'm never going to see him either. Everybody wants to go to heaven, and in a really crude way, everybody does get to go. But everybody doesn't get to stay. There will be a great white throne judgment, not for the church, but for the others. And I say to these people, change the word if you want. I can't, because I will be forever grateful for how it changed me. Let's stand. Let's stand. Dear Jesus, I ask you right now in a very sober and somber atmosphere.
I want the weight of this thing to fall upon us. Your word talks about this thing, the kabod, the heaviness. I want to do my best to have a right spirit and I want to always have a right spirit. I want to learn to smile and laugh. But there are some things that are not laughing matters. There are some things, Lord, that we can just dumb this thing down to where there's no resemblance whatsoever to the church that you died and shed your blood for. Preacher, people, shepherd, sheep, I ask you, God, let this be a place not to be self-righteous, not to be so full of arrogance because of what we no longer do, but that we do these things out of a grateful heart. And I understand you've paid such an enormous price for me. What you're asking me, according to the word, is acceptable. That my body would be a sacrifice. It's an acceptable service unto you. These women, Lord, are going to leave the scissors out of their hair and going to have their dresses covering up. And the men have got to be leading in worship and praise. Because Paul said, I would that men would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without anger and without doubt. In like manner also, I want women to be modest. I'm grateful for modest women in this church, Lord. But as I teach and preach about this, dear God, please, don't let me get a get out of jail card to every man that says he can see her silent. Never be a man of prayer. Never be a man of worship. Never be a man of intercession. If our women have been able and willing God to make a witness in this world where they've been derided and chided and made fun of, then as a man, I must be willing God to lead. I must be willing to be the first with my hands in the air the first at the altar, the first to make a consecration. I'm grateful for women, Lord, but when you came to this earth, you did not come with a dress. You did not come with long hair. You came as a man. And as a man, this is not just my right, but this is my responsibility to be your image to this earth. And I'm asking you, God, to give us godly men who know how first to lead in worship and prayer. And if we'll have those, I believe we'll have modest women that will understand the value of ministering spirits of angels that they literally can bring to a service by their consecration. Dear Jesus, now I pray for revelation. I've done the best I know how to introduce this concept and to teach it again to others. But oh Lord, I know the value of truth is never diminished because of repetition. If it's been true in one age, it's going to be true in all of them. And I ask you, Lord, I want your favor on this church. I want your favor on this church. So we'll do whatever we possibly can to have you smile on us and say, have you considered my, my son down there? You considered my daughter down there? How in the world did Job live in such a way that you offered him before the enemy? What life did he live to gain that type of confidence in you? Jesus, we talk so often about our inheritance in you. But your word says that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we would know the hope of your calling and the glory of the riches of your inheritance in the saints.
I've heard lots of people talk about what they're getting out of you. My question is, what are you getting out of us? Help us, Lord, to live a life that pleases you and that we can find favor in your sight because your eyes are running to and fro, looking to show yourself strong in the behalf of somebody whose heart is perfect towards you. In Jesus' name we pray and call it done. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.